As we prepare for the message today, I'm going to read God's promises in Romans 8, 28 to verse 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. All righty. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much uh, for these promises that we're thinking about today. We thank you for the gospel and the truth that you love us more than we can possibly comprehend. And Father, as we think through how you're working things out for our good, as we think through how you are sovereign and working powerfully in our salvation, Father, I pray that you would help these truths to ring true to our hearts in a, in a fantastic, true, and real, and powerful way. Father, help us as we learn from your word this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How are we doing? All right. Well, as Chris uh, said uh, last week, we're skipping over a few verses uh, these verses that Jeanette just read, and, and actually verse 30 as well, are what we're studying today in the sermon. Uh, last week, Chris preached, I think, verses 18 through 25. So 26 and 27 would be next, but we've got all these plans, and we want to start our Christmas series on time, and he was sick that week. So he's going to double back and preach those near the beginning of the new year. Uh, and so we're skipping ahead to 28, 29, and 30 today in order to stay on schedule. So that's, that's what, we, what Jeanette just read for us. That's what we're focusing in on today. Um, and I was recently, as I think through the, what these verses are talking about, and we're, we're wading into deep waters today. We're, we're wading into mysterious things in God's word. Uh, but I was reminded, just the other day, I was going through like files on my computer, which I'm kind of a neat nick. So like I was organizing 10-year-old files, and I, I ran across this letter that I had written uh, almost nearly 10 years ago. So a lot of you old-timers that have been around at 24 for a long time know that about 12 years ago, 24 commissioned uh, me and Megan and several other folks out to plant a church in East Nashville. And we, we labored in that for about two years. And at the end of those two years, it was, it just wasn't going to make it. Like it became obvious to us, our little band, our core group was uh, tired and worn out. And uh, we had seen some success, but ultimately the church wasn't growing. We were running out of money. Everybody was exhausted and kind of through praying with the Holy Spirit, we felt like God was saying, yeah, this is the end of Basilea Church. And so we were letting everybody know. And I, I wrote this letter to everybody who hadn't already heard uh, to tell them what was going on. And here's just a snippet of it. And I wrote this. Thank you all for your love, support, prayer, and help over the past two years. Though Basilea Church only lasted for a season, what God did in and through us will echo into eternity. In Jesus Christ, we can never really fail because he is taking all things and working them out for our good. What a promise. Do I really believe that? Did I really believe that? That's what we're talking about today. And so look again just at 28 through 30. Let's just read them again, get these really clear 
in our hearts and our minds, it says this. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I want you to notice, first of all, just Paul is talking about things that we know, things we don't know, kind of in the wider context here. And he he says, if you go back to verse 22 and 23 in Romans 8, he says, for we know, so he says, here's something we know. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we await our adoption of sons and redemption of our bodies. So he says, here's what we know. The whole creation's groaning because this isn't how the world's meant to be and God's going to fix it. But in the meantime, we groan, okay? And then just right past that in verse 26, this is the part we're skipping over that Chris is going to come back to. But he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So he says, here's what we know. The earth is groaning. We're groaning. Here's what we don't know. How do we even pray in the midst of this situation that we find ourselves in? Like when things aren't going right, Sometimes we don't even know how to pray. And that verse tells us the Spirit helps us, but it, we're, there's still some mystery. And then, then back to 28, where we are today, he says, here's something else we know. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are calling, called according to his purpose. John Stott says, we're caught in a continuous tension between what we know and what we don't know. I don't know if you ever feel like that. But who is this promise for? See, this, this promise, like this idea is quoted all over our culture. I hear it all the time, don't you? Oh, God's got a plan. Oh, well, I know, I know it's going to work out for my good. I had to go through these things so I could get to those things. And it's quoted by believers, unbelievers, mildly Christian people, very Christian people. I think there's a lot of confusion actually about what this verse is exactly saying, because I want you to notice notice there's two qualifiers. So it says, God's working everything out for our good, but what are the qualifiers? For those who love God, and then at the end, for those who are called according to his purpose. I actually prefer the way the New American Standard says these verses, because it changes the order, and I think it's clearer the way it says. It actually puts them together, and it says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So saying those are the qualifiers. Everything in your life is working out for good if you're a Christian. So those two qualifiers are just describing what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who loves God. A Christian is someone who's been called by God according to the purpose that God has. And it's really two different perspectives. We're going to see this throughout the message. The love God, that's kind of our perspective. How do we know that we're in Christ? Well, we love God. That's what a Christian is, somebody who loves God. But from God's perspective, God is calling and working things out according to his perspective. So it's two different sides of the same coin, but the Bible's trying to say, this is who this promise is for. It's for people who love God and call him where his purpose. It's only for Christians. You see that? So everything's working out for good for you 
if you're a believer. But the Bible says nothing about everything working out for your good if you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer. So, you know, when, when such and such movie star quotes this or when such and such talk show says something similar to this, that's not necessarily a Christian idea. Unless they're a Christian. But this promise is very near and dear to all of us if we are believers. But let's talk what else about what this doesn't mean, and then let's glory in for a second and what it does mean. Notice that it doesn't say, so we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What does it not say? It doesn't say no bad things are going to happen to you. Right? Here's, what, here's the way Tim Keller talks about this. I thought it was so helpful. He says, a Christian's circumstances are no better than anybody else's. The first thing this tells us is that terrible things happen to people who love God. Many Christians explicitly teach, and most Christians implicitly believe, that if I love God and if I serve God, then I will not have as many bad things happen to me. By and large, my circumstances will be better. And this text tells us, and experience shows us, doesn't it, that that's just not true. All the same things that happen to everybody else will happen to people who love God. This obliterates the prosperity gospel. This obliterates any sort of idea that if you love God, you're going to be more healthy and wealthy or more blessed in a material sense than other people. That's not what this verse says. All the same thing. See, we, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is the result of mankind's rebellion against God. And most of us have already experienced this. Maybe some of us are very much in the middle of it right now. And you're a believer. You love God. You've been saved by God. You've been called according to his purpose. And yet, loved ones die. People get cancer. People break your heart. You lose that job. You still live in a city with murders and thefts. You can get cheated on. Bad things you can do and bad things can be done to you. We all live in a fallen world. And this verse is not saying we escape the fallen world in the here and now. Tim Keller again. The promise to those that love God is not that you will have better circumstances. No. It doesn't say that better things will happen to you. It also doesn't say that bad things are really good things. No, they really are bad things. But what does it say? It's that somehow, mysteriously, God is taking all the bad things that still do happen to us and working every single one of them out for our good in the totality. So that when we step back, maybe in this life, but for sure in eternity, we will see how God was in a magisterial way putting all things together to form us into the image of Christ and to show his love for us and to work out every single bad thing that happens to us for 
is good. And again, I, I've just been at 24 long enough to know many, many, many of the stories in the room today. And I know that a lot of us are going through bad things, things that we did not wish were happening to us, hard things, things that came unexpectedly, sorrow, heartache. And if we're in Christ, the Bible's saying that all those things somehow God, sovereign over the universe, is going to take every single one of them and work them out for our good. You don't have to create your own meaning in this life. You don't have to give your suffering a purpose because God has already given it a purpose. He's already said it has a purpose. I'm going to use it somehow and work things out so that every single thing works out for your good. So the loss of loved ones is working out for your good. The job you lost is working out for your good. Your broken heart is working out for your good. Your cancer is working out for your good. Even the mistakes you've made, it includes, here's the glorious thing, it includes the mistakes and the things that we do to ourselves. It doesn't say everything except the stupid things you do work out for your good. It says all things. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. God's taking all things, our mistakes. That relationship we shouldn't have been in. That person we slept with that we shouldn't have slept with. That thing we were addicted to. All things. And working them out for our good. And even also the evil things that are done to you. See, some of you say, well, I... I've definitely done some bad things, but it's not those that haunt me. It's the things that have been done to me that haunt me. And God's even taking the evil, the abuse, the awful things that you don't want to talk about, that you don't even want to think about, but that affect every single part of your life. He's taking those things as well. And the Bible says that he is working them out for our good. Douglas Moo said, we would expect that Paul has particularly in mind the sufferings of this present age when he's talking about this. He says, but the scope should probably not be restricted. Anything that's part of this life, even our sins, can by God's grace contribute towards good. Now we see several other examples where the Bible says something similar. I'm going to read them to you because I think they're helpful. But we think about Joseph, the very end of Genesis. Remember, Joseph was uh, sold into slavery by his brothers. And they definitely did evil. And then, but in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph says this, as for you, he's talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Somehow God was taking the evil that had been done to Joseph and using it for the nation of Israel and working out for their good and Joseph's good. Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11, which we quote 11 a lot, right? But here's the original context. So Israel has sinned against God. They've broken the covenant. They've been carried away as exiles out of the promised land, rejected all God's promise. They're in a bad way. And then God says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, so Babylon's going to reign and be in charge of you for 70 years, but when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And even Acts 2.22, as we think about the crucifixion of Jesus, it's the most evil act that has ever happened in history, and yet God used it for un unbelievable good because Jesus died for our sins. But it, it's wrestling with this tension in Acts 2, and it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God, in some mysterious way, planned the death of Jesus, but the people themselves are who crucified Christ. As I said, mysterious. It's a deep mystery, and I can't fully explain it. But Paul says, we can know this. We can stake our hope on this. See, I think, I think the real context of these verses is Paul wants to give us encouragement, especially if we're in the middle of something sucky. Especially if we're on the verge of going, I don't know that I want this Christian thing anymore. And we're on the verge of giving up. We're on the verge of throwing up our hands and going, I'm done with this. Or maybe you're sitting in the midst of several mistakes that you've made and just going, I think I've wrecked God's plan for my life. Like he couldn't possibly take what I've done and work it out. For, like I've just screwed it up and I'm just going to have to live in my screwed upness for the rest of my life. I've wrecked it. And God wants to take us in those situations and he wants to give us encouragement today. He wants to shatter, not shatter, he wants to spread his love on us. He, want, he wants us, he wants to shatter our, our, our hearts that feel that way and give us fresh hope, you know what I mean? He wants to whisper to you today that you're more loved than you could ever possibly imagine. And you haven't, you haven't wrecked God's plan for your life. He will still use you. He does still love you. You are not beyond hope. It's a glorious promise, an encouraging promise. Take this promise and go to the bank with it today and trust in God. But here's the second thing. So that's 28. And then we're going to dive further into mystery because 29 and 30 start to talk about why this is the case. How is it that God can take everything and work it out for the good of his people? How? 29 and 30. So I, I know that just because look at the word for in verse 29. So just to read it again, for those whom uh, excuse me. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called into, according to his purpose for. So in 29, he's giving us the reason why 28 is true and 29 and 30. For, for John Stott. In these two verses, Paul elaborates what he meant in verse 28 by God's purpose. 
according to which he has called us and is working everything together for our good. He traces God's good and saving purpose through five stages from its beginning in his mind to its consummation in the coming glory. These stages he names foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. So just read with me again these words because that's where we're headed, okay? So Paul says, this is true of you. Verse 28, God's working everything out for your good. How? This is how. He says, because these five things are true of you if you're in Christ. So read 29 and 30 again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Five big words there. You, if you're a Christian, you have been foreknown, you have been predestined, you have been called, you have been justified, and you have been glorified. Okay? Now, I, I want to, I alluded to this earlier, but I want to say something that I think helps us out here. Um, we we can always just about take anything in the Bible and we can look at it from two different perspectives, right? Uh, and this is helpful sometimes to know which perspective we're talking about. We can view things in life through our perspective, which is what's happening in real space-time history, like right now. Like, I make a choice, this happens. I do this, this happens as a result. If I don't pay my taxes, I'm probably going to get in trouble, you know, uh, if, if I punch this guy in a bar, I might be arrested and go to jail, you know. If I'm a really good neighbor, I might be pretty beloved by my neighbors, you know, like cause and effect, okay? That's where we live. But there's another perspective, which is how God stands above time, right? And he looks and like, it's like he sees all of time at once. He stands outside of time. And that perspective is really what these verses are talking about this morning. It's talking about salvation from God's perspective, how he views it in its totality from his perspective. And from his perspective, he says there are five parts of it. There's foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. So I don't want you to get it twisted. And what I'm not trying to say, let me see if I can find this quote that I got here somewhere. What I'm not, yeah, here it is. Um, John Stott and J.I. Packer. What I'm not trying to do is eliminate either one of these perspectives, and I'm not even completely trying to make them make sense because they're mysterious. I'm just saying the Bible teaches both, and I'm embracing both, okay? And the Bible does that a lot. The Trinity doesn't completely make sense to my fallen human mind, but it's true. And so I'm embracing that three can be one. So I'm embracing here that man's responsibility and God's sovereignty are both true. And this, these verses are talking about God's sovereignty specifically. So that's why we're going here. But here's what John Stott says, and he quotes Packer in the middle of this. He says, Scripture's emphasis on God's sovereignty never diminishes our responsibility. Instead, the two lie side by side in an antimony, which is an apparent contradiction between two different truths. Unlike a paradox... An antimony is not deliberately manufactured. It is forced upon us by the facts themselves. We do not invent it, and we cannot explain it, nor is there any way to get rid of it 
save for falsifying the very facts that led us to it. So that's, what, that's what's going on today. Antimony. These are two things. They don't seem to make sense together, but they're both true. And in God's mind, they do make sense together. And we're embracing the mystery. And today we're talking about salvation from God's sovereign perspective. Okay? So look at this first verse, foreknown, or this first word, foreknown. What does that mean? It says that it's true that all things work together for your good because if you're a Christian, you are foreknown. You're foreknown. There's a lot of discussion about what this term means, but here's what I don't think it means. Some would disagree with me. I don't think it means that God looked down through eternity and said, those are the people that are going to choose me when presented with the gospel, so I'm going to predestine them to be mine. I don't think it means that. Because this doesn't say that God foreknew some stuff about you. He foreknows things about everybody. It's talking about covenant relationship. It says those people whom he knew ahead of time. Right? So it's saying that in some mysterious way, God already saw us before we were even created as being his people and in some mysterious way was already in covenant love relationship with us. So that before I was even born, before my parents were even together, God foresaw that Ben would it be, and he said, and I love Ben. Before you were ever born, God in some way, if you're in Christ, foresaw that you would be and decided, I love that one, I know him. You think about how the Bible uses the word know when it says things like, and Adam knew his wife. It's talking about sexual intimacy. It's talking about intimacy. And that's the sense in which this word is being used, not sexually, obviously, but intimately. God knows you. He's already in relationship with you. Right? So he knows you. Tom Schreiner says, God foreknows not just facts about the world, but specific persons. Okay, and so all the ones that are foreknown, what's the next thing? It says he predestines. And we get really hung up about that word. It's actually the first word that's more controversial. But predestined, what does it say we're predestined to? It says, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. So it says, this is the second thing about our salvation. You're foreknown, but you're also predestined. So God, God sees from eternity, this one's mine, and guess what that means for him or her? That person is going to be made exactly like Christ. They're going to be in sin, but I'm going to take everything in their life and work it out to such an extent that they're going to be made perfectly like my son. And so the Bible says that God begins saving us now, but there's going to be a day when everything that's bad about us vanishes. And God takes our soul and our body, all of it, and he makes it like Christ. That's your future. So like Philippians 1.6, Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, that's God. God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of 
Christ Jesus. Why does this matter? Because some of us feel like I am never going to overcome this sin. I am never going to get past this thing. I feel so stuck in my Christian walk right here. I don't know what to do. Is like, like, what's going to happen to me? And God's saying, I, I am going to make you just like Jesus. That's your destiny. It's sure. It's set in stone. It's predestined. You're going to be made conformed to the image of Jesus. One day, all the sin in your life is going to go away, and you're going to be made exactly like him. God's even going to take the scars on your body, and he's going to make them a pointer to who you were, but he's going to give you a brand new body where the the scars no longer affect you. And you're this new person completely and totally. Here's another verse that talks about this. Ephesians 1. I just want to show you that this is all throughout the Bible. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined, he predetermined us to adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his purpose and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Even Revelation 13, 8 says, and all who dwell on the the earth will worship it. It's talking about the beast. You know, like, so everybody on the earth is going to worship the beast, which is not a good thing. It says, except everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. See how the Bible's given us a very different perspective here. As God sees everything as it's unfolding. So we are foreknown. We're predestined to be like Jesus. And then it says we're called. So all the foreknown are predestined and all the predestined are called. And when it uses called here, we can think about the word called in two different ways. There's, there's the general call. It's what I'm doing this morning, which is when I or Chris or Nathan or anybody stands up here and it says, this is the gospel and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's completely true. And if you're here today and you're not sure if you're a Christian or there's never, or you know you're not a Christian or maybe you're still struggling with things of faith, the Bible says, if you call out on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's the general call. All of us are called to give the general call to our friends and families, neighbors, coworkers. We share the gospel with them and we invite them to trust in Jesus. But in this, in this passage, it says that all the, call, all the called are justified. That's the fourth word. And so it must be talking about a call that always accomplishes what it sets out to do. It's talking about the secret call of the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the new birth. It's talking about that moment, if you've experienced this, when maybe you heard the gospel for like the 10th time, but all of a sudden in that moment, the Holy Spirit made your heart wake up. And maybe you'd felt some conviction before, but in this moment, your heart wakes up and you go, oh, I need Jesus. And I want Jesus. And I'm going to believe in Jesus. For me, that happened, I say this a lot, but I, I like to make it relatable. It happened when I was seven. And I'd been to church a hundred times. More than that. Heard the gospel a lot. Went home that day. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit starts speaking to my heart. 
I felt guilty. I knew that I was a sinner. I knew I needed Jesus. And I wanted Jesus. I wanted him to forgive me. God called me to himself. And it says all the called then are justified. That's the fourth thing. Justification, the easy way to remember what this word means is it's just as if I had never sinned. Because we're in Christ, God looks at us and he doesn't see a sinful person anymore. He sees somebody who's been declared legally righteous. It's a, it's a legal word in the Bible. God views it as a courtroom and he goes, these people no longer sinners. It's not like he sees us as forgiven sinners. He, just, he doesn't even view us as sinners ever to begin with because all of Christ's righteousness has been put into our account. And he says, you are righteous. And then the fifth word is glorified. So we're foreknown. You're foreknown if you're in Christ. You're foreknown. You're predestined to be like Jesus. You've been called to Jesus. You've been justified and declared righteous in Jesus. And then the fifth word kind of mysteriously says, and all the justified he also glorified. Now, we would expect it to say, all the justified he will glorify because our glorification is mainly future. Our glorification, let me pull up my, my definition here. The final step in the application of redemption is glorification. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. So there's two ideas in glorification. All sin and wickedness is completely removed from us and we are given new redeemed bodies. That's what we normally, that's what we think of when we think about being glorified, Right? which is mainly a future. We, we've received a little bit of that glory now, but it's mainly a future thing. But here in this verse, it says Christians are already glorified. Here's what Tim Keller says again about this, and I think it's super helpful. He says, one of the most astounding things in verse 30 is this. Glorified is in the past tense. Now, shouldn't he say that the ones he foreknow, he predestined, he called, he justified, he will glorify. He says, no. Why does he say glorified? Past tense. And he says, this is one of the most astounding verses in the Bible, some commentators have said, because it's so absolutely certain that you are bound, that God is going to make you as beautiful as Jesus, that he can talk about it in the past tense because it's virtually done. You see, it's as good as done, it's guaranteed. Isn't that comforting? Then in the middle of the current struggle in which you find yourself, it feels like there's, gee, I'm never going to get out of this. That God's already viewing you as completely and totally made new. From his perspective, you're already glorified. You're already seated with Christ in the heavenly. God wants to give us tremendous encouragement today. God wants, God wants us to know that the bedrock of our salvation is not in us. It is in him and what he is doing. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no person can boast. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You should stake all your affection, all your hope, not on yourself, but on Jesus, who is perfectly working all things out for your good and who loves you. I thought it would just be fitting to end with this, because this has often comforted me in those moments. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want, I want you to have fresh faith and hope in Jesus today fresh comfort in what God is doing in your life today. And again, if there's somebody in here and you haven't made that decision to follow Jesus, I want you to know the offer's open today. That if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. I'm going to be out in the lobby. If you want to talk about that, I would love to pray with you, talk with you, answer questions. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that these things are true and they're mysterious and we don't completely understand them, but your word teaches them. So Father, help us to rest in you and Lord, give comfort and peace and love to us today. Lord, help us to remember these these three statements that Tim Keller said. He said, Our bad things turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost. And our best things are yet to come. Father, would you help us to cling to that truth, to know that today? Lord, would you draw people to yourself? Would you give us fresh faith, fresh hope this morning? Shower your love upon us, Father. And for all these things, in Jesus' name, amen.